Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to a new episode of the Thos Hermes podcast. And this is episode number 22 of season number eight. Two more episodes after this one in this season. And then we will take a two week break, summer break as usual after the season starting fresh at the end of August with season nine. So much about that, more detail at the end of the show, as always. I welcome everyone here who listens for the first time to the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf and I'm your host and the creator of this podcast, speaking to you from the outskirts of lovely Vienna, Austria's capital. And today my guest in this show will be Matthew Thomas Baker and we will speak about his approach to non-dual shamanism, in fact, non-dual shamanism, which sounds a bit like a contradiction. Um, it's his child in a way, and um, very interesting. You're going to hear about that. Now, if you have not yet become a patron of this show, it's maybe the time to do so. Become a patron of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Go to www.patreon.com. Look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast and subscribe as a patron. One dollar per episode. That's to start with. I think that would be nice, wouldn't it? A summer gift to the podcast. And we need it for sustainability of this podcast, of course, like everyone. We know it's difficult times, but um, we need more of you to become patrons. And if you don't want to go to the patron site or forget about it directly there, on our website, thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, there is the Patreon button as well. That brings you directly there to the subscribers page for our Patreon site. But also, of course, you can make one-off donation if you prefer that. We are really happy with that as well. Of course, we need all your support that you can give. Thank you so much. While you're at the website, yes, you know what's coming. While you're at the website, there is all the show notes for now almost 140 episodes that you find there. You can listen to them, the show notes. You can also send comments to me on each either each show or also a general comment with our um, commentary box or message box that we have there. And you can even leave a voicemail. Yes, why don't you do that? Not many of you have done so far. Would be lovely to have more of your voices. And talking about your voices, are you maybe a music performing artist or a composer of uh, music and would like to share that with our listeners here do get in touch many have already done so and also today's music which we are going to listen here today has been shared with one of our listeners he was quite a 
He's quite a famous one, actually. He not was. He is quite a famous one. Christer Linden. He is back this week as again um, with three of his tracks. Quite a few months back, he offered me. Uh, well, it is, in fact, it was a CD with ten tracks, and twice already we used three of them for this show. And I'm very happy that also this week, Christer is going to be our musical guest again, Christer, who has done a lot of music for new movies and for also, I believe, commercials. And he is one of our fans here and listens to the show regularly. Hello out there. So hope you're doing well. And thanks again, Christer, for the lovely music, which we will play again here today. So what else should I tell you? Um, well, I think that was it. I think that was it. No, maybe I should mention Kaikobad Radio before we go. Kaikobad Radio, which is an internet 24-7 radio that I've created and which you can listen for free. And it brings to you all kinds of different podcasts, the best, what I believe to be the best from the internet um, on the world of esotericism, the Western esoteric tradition. And there are great guys like um, Glitch Bottle, Alexander S., and Occult of Personality is there, Esoterica, uh, and uh, Whence You Come, and you name it. I mean, it's 26 creators by now. Can't name them all here. Radio.kaikobat.com. You'll find the link because Kaikobat's spelling may be not familiar to you. you find the link also on the Thoughts Hermes website, and not only the link, you can even listen directly on the Thoughts Hermes website if you click on the, the the player there. There is a radio player also there. So don't forget about that. But now let's go to Chris Lindrister Linden's music. And the first track that we're gonna hear is called Cowboys and Snowdens. Yes, yes, like Snowden, like uh, like Snowden, yes, like Edward Snowden. Um, I don't know if he meant him with it, but that's the name. And Across the Never is the name of the CD, which Christer gave to me uh, some time back. Um, I think it was in December 21 or maybe even earlier. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. In any case, um, this track now we're going to hear is called Cowboys and Snowdens by Crystal Linden, and then we'll come back and we'll delve into the interview. Enjoy.
Cowboys and Snowdens by Crystal Linden opened the musical part of this show here today. And now let's go to the talking part. And as I said, my guest is Matthew Thomas Baker. And Matthew published at the end of May a book that is called The Way of the Mystic Wizard. And in fact, um, it was one of our listeners. Yes, also that happens from time to time that listeners make me aware of a book that appeared or of a, an interesting personality that we should talk to. It has happened a couple of times here and this time it happened. So thank you. I know that the guy who did it is listening and thank you out there for that. So this book, The Way of the Mystic Wizard, is a practical guide for living an awakened life by the founder of the Institute for Non-Dual Shamanism. And that combination, non-dual shamanism, actually, that made me think, hmm, how does that work? And he even created the institute for that non-dual shamanism. So Matthew is a really highly fascinating personality. He has been engaged in spiritual study, transformation, and arts education for over 30 years. He lives in Great Britain, but he is originally from the United States. And also, what he gives us in the interview as an explanation why he moved at some point from the US to the UK, that, uh, the reasons for that, and that's, that's really all very interesting. He's a member of the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, and he tutored others in, the, in that course for several years. And um, so you should, you should really have a look at that. It's, it's, it's really 
great ideas that he's developing here in this interview and in this book. Um, the aim of the book, as he says, is an introduction in the way of the mystic wizard. That's the path that he suggests. Its purpose is to build your own, he calls that cocoon, well, you know, like the butterfly that develops into a cocoon before becoming that beautiful butterfly, in the form of a mystical, therefore non-dual, and magical, therefore shamanic, daily spiritual practice. So it's the mix of those two practices that is quite fascinating and interesting, and that will help you develop your inner life and become more authentic and empowered. And the book, and uh, Matthew wants to make that very clear, is not a basic introduction to non-dual mysticism or contemporary shamanism. Um, there are other books out there that he says people should read for that. This is really just about his own bringing together of the two. And um, so it would be good if you tried to enter that path that you already have a little idea about both non-dualism and shamanism and well uh, i don't think i will keep you much longer because it's matthew who has all these things to say to us um, and i believe that you should really have a look at that i was very surprised to learn many things and understand how matthew brought those two paths together in an interesting way you have a look at it it is really very interesting as always in the middle of the interview of course there will be a break this time it'll be after almost 33 minutes and um, i'll bring you some more music by our musical guest crystal linden but now it's our speaking guest first matthew thomas baker let's go and visit him in the united kingdom enjoy Here comes the interview. I'm very pleased to welcome here today on the Thoth Hermes podcast, Matthew Thomas Baker. Matthew, hello. Great to have you with us here. Hello. Great to be here, Rodolfo. It's a real opportunity. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, with pleasure. I must say today is a, uh, you were a very special guest in, in a way. Well, all my guests are special, of course, but um, you are one of those few actually who have been suggested to me by one of our listeners. And um, so I just wanted to point that out to say, well, do suggest guests if you have ideas. I, you see, it sometimes does work, actually. <laughs> Matthew is here because of that. And uh, I'm very glad to have him here today. And thank you to the guy. I'm not going to mention the name, but um, thanks to that guy who put him forward. I'm sure he's listening and he will me we know that he is meant. Um, the Way of the Mystic Wizard is a book that you recently, I believe quite recently, published, Matthew. Yeah. And uh, it talks about, and not only that book, but your whole, uh, your website, your whole background talks about non-dual shamanism. And of course, at first, when you hear that expression, non-dual shamanism, you feel like, hmm, how does that go together? It seems like a right. kind of contradiction. You're going to explain us all of it here today, why it is not uh, a contradiction. But before we do that, I've called you in London here today, but when we hear you speak, we clearly hear that you are not a Londoner, are you? Yes, no, I'm originally an American. I originally grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, not far from Walden Pond, uh, home of the Transcendentalists. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always trying to find out uh, with my guests um, how they became in the spiritual world or in the world of the Western tradition, uh, what they became, what they are today. So where for you, Matthew, did it all start? Uh, um, I have a colleague who always asks, were you that weird child? Well, were you a weird child? Um, or, or um, yeah, well, how did you get in touch at first with the world of spirituality, with the world of shamanism and non-dualism and, and everything that makes you what you are today? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'm, I, I don't know if I was weird so much as I was just very fortunate to grow up in a forest, you know, and, and maybe that today right. would make me weird, right? <laughs> um, but yes, I was in Concord. There's a lot of uh, land that is still un undeveloped or act actually was regrown after farming stopped in certain areas. And so my parents nestled us into four acres and then there were many other acres around that. So I grew up with, you know, dogs and crows and foxes and owls and, and forests full of oak trees. And you know, as a consequence, because there weren't a lot of other kids around, I really spent a lot of time work walking through the forest and listening to the wind and the leaves. And, you know, I was essentially experiencing what, what today would be defined as nature mysticism before I really knew what that was. And, you know, then there was a lot of gardening and all that kind of stuff. And so then I was fortunate enough when I, when I, Someone gave me a uh, book of Suzuki's poetry when I was in eighth grade, and David Suzuki. Yeah, yeah. So, so ah, right, uh, right. And so, uh, and so, I started reading this um, Zen poetry, and and was like, "What is this? What is Zen? What is Buddhism?" And then I was very fortunate when I got into high school. There was a professor there who taught a class called religion and psychology. And I kind of, you know, forced my way into it. I was really excited and interested in it. And it was normally just for, you know, seniors, 18 year olds. And I, he, he let me take it as a, as a, a junior. And the first thing we read was Siddhartha by Herman Hess. And, uh, you know, it changed my life, you know, <laughs> and then I was reading, you know, um, you know, everything else by Herman Hess. And, and at the same time I was learning to write poetry And then when I got into college, I was, I was, I'm not usually correct in pronunciation, but as a German speaker, yes. I must say it's Hesse, of course. Hesse. Hermann, yes, thank Hesse. you. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we have no idea how to say it correctly. <laughs> um, so then when I got into college, um, I had an opportunity to, uh, jump in and take some classes because the college I went to didn't uh, allow me to not have any requirements. So I got to really move around the curriculum a lot. And so I took Norse mythology and I took Tibetan Buddhism. And both of these classes were, were actually ironically taught by the same teacher, um, Professor Slotin. And, and it was kind of like an initiation because it turned out, I didn't find out until, you know, late in the class that he, he was a mystic who'd had a really extraordinary awakening experience. And only later as I became, you know, more acquainted with him, did he actually, you know, kind of describe that experience. And, and he, he then proceeded to sort of those of us who are interested in religion and psychology and spirituality and mysticism, he would take us all the, di the different churches and the different synagogues and the different religious organizations in our college. And he'd be like, let's go try this. Let's go try this. Let's go try this. And, you know, he was in a sense initiating us into a kind of very um, broad approach to understanding the paths that are available to us without any kind of, you know, direction, any particular direction. Now he, you got to understand, he's a very Nordic guy. He was like six foot six. You know, he was, by the time I met him, he was, you know, totally gray hair. And he had gone to India for six months. And, you know, you can imagine that guy walking down the street and, you know, to go and commune with, you know, Ganesh and all the other right. ladies. And so he had some really beautiful stories and, 
So without knowing it, I think that I was really being kind of introduced to kind of a way of life, which was the quest for mystical knowledge. And, and then a couple other things happened. I read an incredible book by V.S. Naipaul in which I was introduced to shamanism, you know, a bend in a river. And I was like, what is this? What's going on here? I took, it was an African literature class. And I was, hmm. I, that just really kind of opened me up. And so by the time I was leaving undergrad, I had kind of like a whole set of possibilities that could grow. And then I moved out to Arizona, went to grad school for creative writing. And um, then the real big kind of thing happened, I would say. I, I was very aware of not wanting to appropriate anything from the Native American tradition. And by then, in the 19, early 1990s, you know, people were starting to be more sensitive to those kinds of things and be like, hey, ma- you know, wait a minute. And I, I probably read somewhere like, you know, really, you should go find out where you come from. And, you know, my people on my, on my dad's side are from Darby. They're bakers. They're, you know, they're English. And my mom's side were the Seavers and they were and they were Scottish. And so I was like, I need to go find my tradition. And I, and I walked into a bookstore one day and there was the Druid Animal Oracle by Philip Cargom and Stephanie Cargom just jumping off oh. this, uh, jumping off the, you know, the shelf for me. And I took it home and there you go. It's 30 years later. I've been a Druid ever since. Yeah. <laughs> well, Philip, Philip was also a guest on this show uh, That's right. a That's year right. ago or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And he's wonderful. We eventually became friends and he's been a big supporter. And in fact, he has, he quote, he did a quote for me in the back of the book. And I mean, my I saw mom, that. Yeah. yeah, actually he was, he was on my Jubilee show number hundred. He was oh, a guest. That's that. great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, yeah. But I saw that he also, he's on the back of your book. As a, exactly. As support. Yeah. 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 So, so are you a member of, of the order? Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I completed yeah, yeah. I completed all the levels in their in their um, in their esoteric oh, course. Yeah, 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 it yeah. took about seven years, and then um, ironically, while I was going through the bardic grade, I was getting a master's in creative writing, and then while I was going through the the ovate grade, which is about you know prophecy and healing, I was getting a master's yeah. in counseling and psychology, and then when I got into the druid grade, all of a sudden I was given an opportunity and I have to admit, I did ask for it. I kind of asked for the spirit world to be like, put me to work. And they, they said, wait a minute. And six months later, I was, I was given an opportunity to start an art school and I did that. Mm. And so I, that's been my profession for really the last 25 years before I just retired. And then, uh, finally got to go to the OBOD annual meeting in Glastonbury for the first time in 30 years, because, um, the graduation for my school was always during their, during their normal, um, you know, uh, right. So, so when was that? That was just this June and the book came out and I had had an opportunity to teach, which was really great. You know, it's like a kind of circle. uh, Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. um, So then, you know, while I was out there as well, I mean, I I also was trying to figure out how to follow in the, in the, in the Buddhist path as well to sort of figure out what is the best case for me. And I was very fortunate that not very far from where I lived in Arizona, um, his eminence, Garchin Rinpoche, has his American seat and base, um, worldwide base, and that's in Chino Valley in Arizona. And a friend of mine just, you know, I was looking for a path and I, I felt really connected to the, the goddess Tara, the, you know, um, white Tara, and uh, I had been doing some meditations, but really didn't have any, um, hadn't taken refuge or any of that. And then he came in one day to the bookstore and said, hey, have you, did you know that Garchin Rinpoche is up? And I didn't even know he was. So he said, why don't you come up this weekend? And so I went up that weekend and I didn't realize it was like a, it was a, you know, an empowerment for Chakra Zimbara. It's like, you know, really like really high end, like empowerment. He's like, don't worry about it. Not a problem. Uh, and so I went in and, uh, he's a pretty extraordinary individual, Garton and, um, and Garton Rinpoche. And he just, 
yeah, you can just feel his awakened state move through the room when he starts talking. Mm. And so mm. right then and there, I was like, oh, this will work, you know, <laughs> to introduce me to uh, Mahamudra, Dzogchen and the Awakened right. Eight. And so I did that and took a refuge in Bodhisattva vows. And I've been working in that tradition ever since, mostly, you know, on my own, obviously. I mean, I haven't joined a monastery or anything. Um, and then I also worked with Peter Fenner, who's a wonderful um, non-dual teacher. And, um, and I took a course with him and he's really good at transmitting the non-dual state and how to talk about it. He has some really wonderful books out there. And he, um, he also gave me a quote in the back of the book, which is really wonderful. I, he really encouraged everybody who is part of his teacher training program to go figure out how they can bring non-duality into the world. And that really brings me to the what, you know, why the book non-duality and shamanism coming together because my Druji background, my experience with my own shamanic teacher and then with Mahamudra and Dzogchen and all of that, I was just sitting with it all, just sitting with it all going, well, what can I do? Mm -hmm. What can I bring to the world? And it all just kind of came together. And I realized I've been kind of teaching this stuff for years, but it's not really being taught together in the West. They're being taught as separate things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where it all came from. Okay. Um, lots of questions uh, I noted while you were speaking, because um, if you, I don't know if you have listened to my podcast previously, but um, mm -hmm. I, you were, if you did, you were warned probably that I like to ask uh, sometimes my guests about their definitions of terms that are very commonly used, but yeah. are very commonly used in very different ways. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I have two things um, in particular that I would like to, to ask you uh, before we go in depth also in your book and in the, the way of the mystic wizard, as you mm -hmm. call that book. And the mystic wizard is the, the term that you use for the person that you, I believe you want to create through the, the book for, for the individual who works yeah. with that. Right. Yeah. The path. Exactly. Um, yeah. Exactly the path. Um, so mystic, magic, occult. So those are three terms you you could use in that same context. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, why did you choose mystic? What is a mystic for you mm -hmm. um, uh, as maybe opposed or not opposed or as compared to a magician or an occultist? Maybe what's mm -hmm. what's the difference for you and why did you choose that term? Okay. That's a great question. I, and I define it in the book and why I chose it that way. And the, the way I look at it is that a, a mystic is, in, is, is a seeker who's seeking the nature of consciousness to understand their own true nature. And, and as a consequence, how the, um, the mind and the heart and how we work as beings in relationship to consciousness itself. And so the ultimate quest of the mystic is to break through the kind of consensus paradigm and real and realize their own unity with what would I simply term, you know, basic awareness or the natural state, which permeates everything like the whole field of, of, of our reality from the air to walls to people. And that this is our basic identity. And, and the reason a mystic does that, in, in my definition, is essentially to alleviate the anxiety and the alienation that we gain when we develop an egoic self, which is, you know, completely natural. That's, no, that's what we're supposed to do. But it generates mm -hmm. all kinds of behavior patterns that ultimately create suffering. And so, I mean, really, this is a basic Buddhist idea. I mean, we're talking about what it was typically yeah. called enlightenment or whatever, but really I'm just calling it awakening because, you know, and, and the enlightenment thing is, is, is that term gets so wrapped up in all kinds of weird baggage sometimes. And so uh, awakening actually seems like it, 
is more like a process, you know, it, it seems like something that unfolds and, and that seems to be how most people go through this process. So you can see that harkens all the way back to the Siddhartha book, you know, um, of mm-hmm. okay. the, yeah. and, and, and so from um, a mystic for me is someone who's on the quest to alleviate the, the deep longing that they have for trying to, um, overcome the sense of alienation from their, their true, their truest, deepest consciousness. And that's a, that some people feel that as a, like a really burning need. And, uh, it's a part of this path for sure. Um, mystic is, or mysticism is often also defined as the personal encounter with the deity or the experience, mm-hmm. in, let's say, of the deity. Yep. Um, so if you define the deity as that wholeness, as that, that one, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, hermeticists would also do that. Um, mm-hmm. Would you see a difference between that or is hermeticism in the classical um, Ptolemaic sense, yeah, so to speak, yeah, yeah. Hellenistic sense. Is it is it close to what you mean, or is is that rather different from the more Eastern approach that you take? Uh, you know, my experience is that they're not all that different. I mean, I, I actually define it in three different way, three different kinds of mysticism. Essentially, you have what I would call formless mysticism, which is which is seeking after empty, pure, empty, pure awareness. Okay. And then mm-hmm. de- deity mysticism, which where you're actually encountering deities and, exactly. and then also nature mysticism where you're, you're literally encountering the spirits of nature, the energy of nature. And that these are fairly defined kinds of activities and they can, they can actually develop and lead into each other. And like I said, I really started as a, as a, um, as a nature mystic, you know, just by, you know, mm-hmm. by default. And then I would say that then I, I really sought after um, the non-dual or formless mysticism. And then only later when I got involved in, in, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, did I come back around to find deity mysticism and be like, well, why would I want to do that if I already know the formless? And the answer was the minds of a deity, the mind of a deity, when you begin to work with it can, and, and, and sort of download it essentially like white Tara helps you hold the perception of the awakened state. And the mm-hmm. art, and so there, there, there's these powerful reasons that these three things can be can be woven together. So for me, the mystic is all three of those. So some people start out in the Greenland, some people start out with the deities, some people start out with the formless, and you never know where your path is going to take you. I mean, um, I think right. one has something very important to help with, and. And I do that in the book. I, I sort of try to clarify those things, and even though certainly do, yeah, the goal is kind of if there's a goal, I would say. I mean, I, I think you can access the formless from any of these directions is what I'm trying to say. Right. Does that right. make sense? Absolutely. We, we will go deeper into the book a bit later, but maybe just to say that for a moment, uh, when I took it in hand and started going through it, 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 it gives you not only the impression, I think it does exactly that, um, a very broad approach. It tries to take you in from from all sides, from all possibilities to yes. bring you to the point. I yes. think that's what you also wanted to do, right? Yes. Yeah. Now you keep in mind that the book is really based on about 15 years of work that I did teaching a class mm. called poetry, myth, magic, and the art of transformation in my own art school. Yeah. We, so, we will. I want to come yeah. to that also yeah. because that's a very important point. So we're talking about um, young people, you know, 
Exactly, exactly. Um, I think we need to, to say what Siddhartha is. You, you mentioned it twice. Some people here listening might know it, but maybe not everybody yeah. knows it in detail. It's a book by Hermann Hesse, which basically is a, is a, poetic, a poetic rendering of the biography of, of Buddha, of, of, of Prince Siddhartha, who became the Buddha later yeah. on, right? Would you, would you agree on that yes, definition? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that's the basic idea, and it kind of outlines... Um, some of uh, his life, but it, it also really, it, it unli- in the unlikely sense, it kind of takes the story into a way that allows you to ex- to also explore alternate paths of how things unfold. Of course, it's not a historical novel. It's it, not a historical it is novel. Meant to be, it's yeah. meant to be an initiatic book. Or, or yes, I'd say, exactly. And, I would and, say it, exactly uh, it is. I think it was an initiatic book for me, in fact. <laughs> uh, it certainly is, and it has been for quite, quite a number of people. And I think it was... I would I would suggest the aim of Hesse was yes. to to exactly do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. To help someone like yeah. me when I was a 17 years old to be mm-hmm. like if you have the heart of a mystic to be like oh here's a way you can you know, you're not the only one kind of thing if you live. Exactly. So, exactly. So um, it's, a, it's an important book. And I think yeah. if people haven't read it, I think it's it's part of, of that what every esotericist should should have read at some point. Yeah. And it's not long, you know. <laughs> it's not long at all. No, no, absolutely. And it's an easy read. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Um, Another definition, of, but I, I, I promise it's the last one, sure. um, and, and that might sound a bit um, strange to you why I'm asking for that definition, mm-hmm. but even with dualism and non-dualism, I hear all kinds of different yeah. uh, definitions, approaches, whatever. Um, give, us, give us here your clear definition of what those two terms exactly mean because we need it to yeah. talk about shamanism and being non-dual right yes absolutely yeah yeah so dualism from the perspective of and i'm talking about it from the perspective of a view like how we see the world not necessarily like a like a religion being dualistic so the, sure. du- the dualistic view is the view that sees the self and other as separate the non-dual view is able to see through the illusion of that separation and see um, essentially spirit or pure awareness or, you know, what it, you can call it a variety of things, essentially staring back at you and, um, and realize, and you have the realization in a variety of different ways that you are that, and it is you and you're like, you're staring at yourself. So it's not that you necessarily vanish into oblivion. I mean, that's a specific kind of meditation. I'm talking about the day-to-day non-dualism of walking around, still having your egoic self aware, but literally seeing through the objects and almost like seeing through them as a mirage. You know, you see, you see the outer part and you, and then you sense through and awareness is right there looking back at you. I mean, whether it's a refrigerator or a person, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, obviously, yeah, yeah, if it's yeah. a person, it's like a glowing thing going on inside their beautiful eyes, right? <laughs> Would you say that good old pantheism is also a form of non-dualism? Yeah, I think it can be, you know, I mean, if it, mm. it all depends on the view of the person who's using it. If you if you know, the funny thing is, I think that all of us start with this non-dual capacity as children, as babies, you know, like we 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 grow into our egoic selves. But in the beginning, we have this awareness of awareness that just because we haven't really separated much from it when we're really young. And so 
for me, a part of what's going on when we, when we develop our capacity for non-duality and, and, and such is we're kind of recovering an awareness and a memory that was in there and kind of trying to bring it up into our conscious minds without it entirely threatening our egoic selves and utterly destroying everything on, on the way. Because that's ten, the tendency is when it's like, you know, it's almost like the egoic selves take pose- takes possession of awareness and says, it's mine and it's only mine. You know, <laughs> like it's a big cookie. Mm-hmm. You know, I am me and I am nobody else's me. So that, you know, if you have something that threatens that you can imagine defense mechanisms are going to pop up so sure yeah so there's ways of working with that that make it more palatable and possible for people to engage with it absolutely so th- thank you for that i think that that was important and um, you mentioned naipaul i was surprised by that because of course naipaul famous author and many yeah. of us here i'm sure have read him and um, i you have to help me. I, I, I cannot recall. I have read, but it has been some time, a few of his books. Uh, where is shamanism uh, uh, reflected in his in his books? Where Which book did you mention I'm, in particular? You know, it's so long ago. I mean, I took this African literature class, I think probably because my, my parents lived in Nigeria for three years during and, and were running that part of Nigeria for the Peace Corps for the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. I grew mm-hmm. up around a lot of uh, sort of shamanic items from the African tradition. And my parents, right. you know, got to know a bunch of different kinds of people there. So so when I got, I took the VS, I mean, I took the African lit class and I think it might've been a bend in the river. It, it wasn't a lot. It was just literally like a paragraph where he was describing someone interacting with, um, someone who was the head of, you know, one of the tribes there. And it just made a reference to, and described that essentially that the indigenous people would change the way they spoke to people who are the colonists and because they, you know, there was a distinct, a difference in worldview about whether this stuff was really real or not. And that was my, that was my first kind of like, Oh, (laughs) Oh, so, so actually there might be a whole lot of people out there that are just lying to Westerners because they know that we don't believe it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it was just like, it was just the seed. It was the kernel that sent me on the quest. Okay. Yeah. So like sometimes it happens that you have a special. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 So I thought I had missed something in particular, but I got you now. What you, what what you, what you, what you mean there. Okay. Okay. Um, well this, this podcast is of course, uh, mostly talking about the Western esoteric tradition. And I'm glad that here today we, we kind of do, we have done before and with other uh, guests, but uh, rarely a kind of marriage or meeting of the two. Mm-hmm. of the two worlds um, yep. how do you in general um, feel about that I hesitate to use the word separation because I don't want to use it I also feel sometimes that it's a bit of an artificial um, yeah. terminology the western and eastern traditions but of mm-hmm. course there are differences but how would you, how do you lift that um, well, let's call it separation for the moment. Um, how do you experience that in your day-to-day work with that? Um, I mean, not you as a person, you visibly, you you yeah. manage to bring them together, but how do you experience this with others, with people you talk to, you work with, um, that mm-hmm. separation? Um, uh, Between, how that, yeah. how, where did, yes, where, where did it come from? What happened here? Well, I think because of that, I think the origin of it is probably that very first class I took on um, religion and philosophy. I mean, religion and and psychology, because we looked at so many different things that my first approach, I I wasn't brought up in any specific tradition. My family goes back as Quakers, but we weren't actively participating. And so my first really introduction to spirituality and religion and psychology 
was from all over the world. We were looking at Hinduism, we were looking at Buddhism, and we were looking at Christianity and Islam and Sufism, and and, and then all looking at Maslow, and we were looking at Jungian and Freudian, like all of it together. And so that was the context, and so that became my normal, you know? And so I've always spoken from this place, and I remember trying to de- de- to describe this to someone once, and I, and, I, and I said, like, well, I kind of think of myself as a as a member of the human race of planet earth, you know, and, and like, and, it, sure. and I said like, look, you know, my approach to it is like, if, if I was sent and dropped onto another planet and somebody said, well, well, tell us about your planet. And I, and I just said, well, I'm a Sufi. And they're like, well, what's that? And is every, oh, so everybody's a Sufi. And I'd be like, oh no, 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 hold on a minute. Uh, you know? <laughs> so like they, they would look at the idea of the separations that we have on our planet as, as quite artificial. They'd be like, okay. They'd be like, you're an earthling. Okay. So all of the stuff on earth belongs to you, you know? And, and the, the idea is to be like how to work with that and, and build a practice around that openness. And so I never really got the f- a massive split between East and West because I found, you know, I, I studied Roman history early and, I, you know, there was from, from, especially when Constantinople was built and there was this huge just mixing of, of, of traditions in Alexandria and Constantinople. And it just seemed like it all had already come together for me. And so the more I read about one thing, the more it linked to another. And, um, I had always been interested in China and Japan when I was a kid. So Mm -hmm. I just speak from the place of my experience, which is each time I go into the inner world and I work, um, from a specific tradition and I end up finding traditions that called to me and I went deeper into, um, yes, I had to do some inner reconciliation where, how is it I can be working with Ganesha and also an Egyptian, a, a deity and also, um, a Western esoteric approach, uh, inside Christianity and Druidry. And the answer from the spiritual world was like, what's your problem? <laughs> you know, um, it was like, there was like, they weren't really having a problem with it. You know, it was sort of like, as long as it's authentic and you, and you're working from a place of devotion, um, there is a response now. Am I putting them all on the same altar? No, you know, <laughs> um, it just, it, that doesn't really necessarily always like feel right, but I'm, I'm very much an intuitive feeling approach is my approach to building things rather than logical or, um, you, you know what I mean? And so, so I, I tend to sort of approach things from that way and then teach from that place. And it seems like it liberates people from some of the boxes they found themselves in, you know, mm-hmm. tradition boxes. And I talk about that a little bit in the book, you know, how to, how to, sure. stuff. well, so historically, of course, when you, well, think of somebody like Peter Kingsley, for example, but, yeah. uh, also others who, who, who very much, I wouldn't say preach, that would be kind of diminishing what they do, yeah. but um, they teach rather than they preach uh, that that there is that link between the East and the West that has always existed. Yeah. Uh, and which which kind of brought all those things together anyway from the very beginning. So, so, yeah. And shamanism as in as seen in the classical way, so to speak, yeah. whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it's hard to compare Siberian shamanism to North American shamanism, but it yeah. is seen as a, as the same thing in a way. Right. Um, um, but that is kind of the proof that you have that very similar approach to things in, in very different cultures and very different areas of the world. Yeah. Or yeah. how would you, how would you, how would you see that? I mean, for me, I mean, when I, when I finally came across shamanism, I mean, obviously I started inside Druidry, but then I worked with my uh, shamanic teacher who was, you know, trained in the Harner method, you know, 40 years ago. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, 
one of the things that I think is powerful about shamanism is it's self-revelatory in the sense that you go into the inner world and you work with spirits and you work with deities and you work with the ancestors. And so human beings have been doing that in whatever ways they figured out all over the world for who knows, 50 to hundred thousand years, who knows, right? So that also is something that belongs to everybody. And I mean like every person on earth, it's our heritage. So long before there was what we think of as civilization and cities, people were functioning this way for way longer than we've had civilization and cities. <laughs> so, Absolutely, so, yeah. so our religious instinct, I will call it, it, it flourishes at every stage of development that has unfolded in our species evolution. And to me, it, looking at shamanism, looking at the, the great religions, looking at the mystical traditions, the esoteric traditions, each one of these is a manifestation of the development of our species, you know, trying to figure things out from different stages of our, of our growth. And each one contributes something, even though sometimes pieces get left behind. You know, mm-hmm. and um, but what inspired me actually when I when I got involved in Tibetan Buddhism and I went to my first ceremony and I saw how much of the indigenous older shamanic tradition had been kind of integrated into and transformed by Buddhism into kind of like a living um, expression of that of that merging of, you know, stuff. It reminded me Mm -hmm. when, you know, when, when Christianity came to the British Isles and I can't remember which Pope it was, Pope maybe Gregory or something who said, look, you look, work with them, work with what they've got, you know, and, and try to, you know, integrate as much as you can. And, and I thought, wow, no, well, that was a smart, you know, emperor slash Pope. I can't remember who it was exactly. (laughs) Um, you know, but I thought like, okay, so when, when that kind of thing happens, you can get a kind of developmental process that doesn't leave everything behind or cut everything off, which I think is far more healthy than a kind of conquer slash forced enforced, you know, transition, um, which we've obviously seen in a a lot of places around the world. Well, in 95% of the case. Yeah, exactly. So we've got maybe 5% where it was done. We were fortunate that was done well. And so nothing, not everything was lost. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do in my book is allow people to, to say, let's say you're coming from a, a Buddhist perspective or a Christian perspective or um, you're Muslim and you're like, I want to go back and check in with my original indigenous people who lived here. Well, oh, I, I can do that. I have the right to do that. You know, and how do I and oh, the book gives you hopefully empowers you to feel like you can do that without betraying where you're coming from. Um, and you know, and if, if it feels like you are, then it's not, it's not really, probably the right path, you know? So, um, it's definitely Absolutely. not the right path yeah. for everybody. So, uh, so that's kind of my approach. And, um, I, I see East and West as nice distinctions for understanding in a very kind of global sense, some of the orientations, you know, but the melting pot of the Middle East and the Silk Road kind of just becomes this beautiful merging of those things. Uh, I, th- I think Central Asia is a, yes, is a point Asia. of the world that in that context has been um, overlooked most of the time, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, yeah, yeah. And very much so. And it's, that's just, I think that's actually just an accident of our particular um, Western worldview right now that is so centered from, you know, Western Europe over. You know, um, but for most yeah. of most of Western history, it's really been in that area. It's been the center of everything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and meaning really Central Asia, not China. We have looked at India. We have looked at Russia. We have looked at, but Central Asia, which lies in between, kind it's, of has been overlooked all the time. I know it's so ironic because it's so important and powerful historically <laughs> for all those other parts. For all those other parts, yeah. exactly right. Let's now take a music break again and. 
Once again, we will be accompanied musically by Christa Linden, who offered this great CD across the never that he created to us in order to be played on the show. The third time over, I'll do this because there were 10 tracks on that CD and twice three we already had. And there is another track left now um, because now today with the other three we are up to nine so sometime there will be track number 10 that we will play as well um, so now in this break the next track that's called the great surrender the great surrender by crystal linden which will be followed by part two of the interview with my guest matthew thomas baker and we continue to speak about his book, The Way of the Mystic Wizard. So now The Great Surrender is up now. And after Matthew's interview at the end, the third track, which is called Awake and Dissolve. Sounds quite alchemistic to me. And of course, after the third piece of music by Christer, we are gonna hear you are gonna hear me again and i will tell you what's going to be up next week in episode 23 of season eight so once again now the great surrender by crystal linden then part two 37 more minutes of interview and awake and dissolve after that with fresh announcements in the end
I promise it's the last question before we go into the book, but sure. Uh, you have mentioned it briefly, and I also read that on your website. Um, and I think it's important because it also, if I understand it well, it it, it created your wish to write that book. Yeah. Um, you were for a long time teaching artists, right? Yes. yes. Teaching artists to to express themselves right um, yeah well yeah. i wonder because many of well, i am myself i'm a, i am a performing artist but um, many of our listeners here are musicians performing artists or are visual artists a lot of them really i'm always surprised how many do artistic yeah, work yeah yeah um, probably occultism attracts people and the other way around uh, yeah absolutely um, um, but so I'm really curious to hear you and also I'm sure our listeners are very keen to hear you uh, on your teaching experience, what you did there and in sure. what relation that sits with what we are talking about here. Sure. It's a great question. You know, <clears throat> I was fortunate in 1998 to have an opportunity to start my own art school and uh, it took a long time to develop. It was there for it's, you know, I just handed it on to a new head of school and, and I ran it for about 24 years. And while I I was inside of it, uh, I was able to create a class that would explore uh, the kinds of things that I was able to explore in that class I took long ago in high school. And so I, in some sense, it was almost like an homage to the professor that I took. I was like, here's a great opportunity to kind of do what he did for me for other people. And so that's where started as a poetry class because my background is in creative writing, both, you know, fiction, stories, novels and poems. And then, uh, you know, just like I was, the kids that are interested in poetry and stuff, they're often interested in journaling and self-reflection. And then they started, they're interested in symbolism and Jungian stuff. So it's like, oh, before we know it, we were into psychology and symbolism. And, and so the, the class really evolved over about 15 years. And I, I'll never forget one time about five or six years into it, one of my students just looked at me and said, I think you're trying to find something in this class, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I was like, maybe you're right, you know, cause we've just been kind of wandering around seeing what the thing would eat, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so then I started to take it a little bit more seriously. And, and, uh, and so then we started going on what I would call the quest for the sacred hallows every year. And that comes from, you know, John and Catelyn Matthews, wonderful Arthurian tarot. And so I, I needed kind of like a structure for these kids to go through and we and broke into four seasons, which was great. And so um, I had been taking people on inner world journeys to very simple little tiny things um, to help them get connected to thinking symbolically. Because a lot of what's difficult for people is that they get they get developed and educationally, they just learn to think rationally and logically and their innate sort of childhood capacity for symbolism starts to diminish because it's not, you know, developed very much. So <clears throat> the more journeys that happened, the more we investigated and began to sort of discover a world inside and, and some of it was based on what we all found together. Some of it was based on what I had, had learned through Obad and Druidry. And so over 15 years, I developed that course until essentially my, my own educational instincts kicked in where I, I was like, okay, I got to have a curriculum really developed. It's got to be really refined and all that kind of stuff. And so it just got better more and more like that. So finally, what happened was I got, we got to the pandemic and it's, you know, this is like a, this book is like a pandemic baby, you know, I mean, it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the last time I taught that course, I was on zoom and the whole screen was black because, you know, I didn't make my students have their screen on. So I was like, you know what, maybe this, I could do two things could happen here. And it actually came from one of my, one of my students from the Institute for Nautical Shamanism, which, which I started about five years ago as an alumni of my other school. And she said, look, why don't you, why don't you just record everything? 
transcribe it and write a book. And I was like, cause no, that's a lot of work is what I said. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so, but when, once I was looking at a screen that was mostly like, you know, there was no people on it. I was like, well, that gives me a purpose to feel like I need to stay in it. You know what I mean? To really stay in during the pandemic. So that that full first year of school in the pandemic, I recorded the whole class and, um, and not the kids talking obviously, but just my lectures and introductions to things. Mm. And then I had all the you know, folios and pictures and things. I mean, there's a, quite a bit of original stuff in my book that, that, that kind of got developed over the many years, you know, from the, um, you know, the, the life compass thing to the, you know, the pyramid of how you build a practice so you can sustain your practice as an artist or, you know, uh, artist slash spiritual quester. So, so there, so there you have the hollows there. You have how the book kind of went from, from recording it to transcribing it, to organizing it, to editing it, to rewriting it, to putting it through Grammarly, <clears throat> to giving it to my friends who are English teachers, you know, <laughs> and, and then <clears throat> finally sending it to an editor. And, and, and of course she sent it back to me and said, make this as good as you can possibly make it. Then send it to me again. And I was like, I thought I already did that. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, well, frustrating, frustrating editors. Yes. A fantastic, yeah. a fantastic editor. And so I, I, I worked on another six months, sent it back to her. And of course, when I sent it to her, it had four parts. Right. And by the time we edited and transformed it, and it now has 11 parts that all make 11, sense, exactly. you know, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's, yeah. it's more, yeah. uh, clean and, and makes more sense. So. Absolutely. No, it is very clean and it's very, it's very clear. Um, it's interesting because you're talking about those hallows, as you just mentioned, and also um, other, other stuff like um, when you mentioned you're part of Obot and the, har, uh, the Harner way of, of uh, shamanism. And so it is, well, Harner maybe is not a typical example, but the other things are. Um, it all sounds, in fact, really, as you said initially, very British. You, yeah. you, yeah. Your tradition, uh, at least the Western part of it, sounds very much influenced by the British Isles. Right. Yeah. I, I now, is, is that something you were looking for and found because of the background that you mentioned earlier, or do you think it just happened, or, or how would no, you? No, I think that? it was. I, it was definitely kind of deliberate when I was out in Arizona, where I moved, and I was, I was, I, I was trying to figure out where my people were from, and I found Obad. I got very connected to the tradition, and and there's a lot of Celtic myth in that tradition, yeah, and the Celtic deities and stuff, and and then interesting enough something happened. Like I had completely forgotten that I'd taken the course on Norse mythology with this mystic that I was talking about and that he was like seriously Norse, you know, <laughs> he was yeah, like, yeah, you know, second yeah. generation Swedish guy. And so yeah. what ended up happening was even though I had learned to get to know the Celtic, um, I was really drawn into the Anglo-Saxon as well and the source of their myths. And that brought me back to, um, Another class I took in high school, which was German history and German mythology. And I was very fortunate to have a good history department in my, my school. And so I started feeling drawn into all those myths and particularly the, you know, the whole cycle, you know, and the deities from Freya to Odin to, you know, all the different deities in there. And I realized that what was happening is as much as I was bringing together East and West, I was also bringing together in my own consciousness, the Celtic and Anglo-Saxon. 
into inside of me and like like this ancient marriage that had taken place as the migrations from the the northern part of Europe came in. So I had to retrace my lineage. And I actually went on a trip Mm -hmm. one uh, a few years ago before I moved to London that started in Sweden, visited a friend of mine, went to some of the, you know, the great, you know, uh, old areas in Uppsala, I think it's called, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, areas and then tracked all the way down the the route that um, those, you know, migrations took. So, so there is definitely a, there's a British Isle connection, but it also connects into those Norse kind of backgrounds, I guess, or Nordic backgrounds, I guess you would call mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. and on some level, I believe I'm kind of reconciling internally my own ancestral lineages. And that's the only way I can explain it shamanically, you know, which, which <laughs> makes it even more surprising to be non-dual. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. I wouldn't even call that the first chapter. It's definitely not the first part, but it's a two pages in the beginning yeah. where you define the archetype of the mystic wizard. Yes, right? yes. Could you maybe just do that for our listeners here so that they, they get understand. a bit of an idea of what, what that is? Yeah, what they're getting into. Like, why would you bother, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, so, exactly. So, like, in other words, the essence of the path is the way of the mystic wizard. And so what you're combining is the mystic's desire to seek to find you know, the awakened state, the nature of true consciousness. So you can be free from a certain kind of suffering and to understand how consciousness works in the universe and and in human beings combined with, you know, essentially the way of the wizard, which is um, essentially embodied archetypally, you know, in a, in a mythical sense by people like Merlin and Gandalf from the Nordic, you know, tradition essentially. And then all the way up through, you know, um, you know, Dumbledore and the, you know, these characters in modern fantasy and the, the reason, Reason I wanted to use it's the first time actually that I saw Dumbledore in a, yeah, in, this, yeah, yeah. In, a, in a series of cultist book. To be yeah, honest, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I fully agree because I think the, that the books she wrote um, uh, are a perfect image of. of, yes. of today's occultism but but um, yeah. still uh, it, it, it's quite daring to do it and I congratulate you for that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So, yeah. I mean, when I was looking for wizards, you know, I, in the Western system, I, 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 I can't I, I had to approach it. I mean, remember, this book is really written out of a class that was written for high school students and it's really written for people who are coming to spirituality and to essentially you know, esoteric spirituality with not necessarily any experience. I mean, we don't want to really mm-hmm. dump the deep end of the pool. We want to give them an access point and most people have some semblance of idea of what a mystic is and what semblance of a wizard is. And the real question is, why are they put together? And the answer is, ironically, non-dual. The answer is, mm-hmm. is that the mystic is looking for the non-dual truth and the wizard is attempting to master the nature of the laws of the universe to improve life for him or herself and the world. And so, so that's the two parts. That's of it, the right? two parts of me. And that's the, and mm-hmm. that's and there's something about particularly this generation that there's a there's an emergent sense of, you know, immediacy on our planet that the idea that the mystic is you know, a hermit who retreats from the world to go find like like it's almost like look, we don't have time for that, you know, but we also we also can't we don't just have time for, you know, for tech wizards like we, we want the mystic and the wizard to come together so we can bring the inside of the mystic and the capacity and the kind of um, know-how of the wizard into the world. And so that's the idea is that we're going to use both of those to build a practice that allows you to do both. And I, I'm constantly kind of trying to bring people back to the idea that to, to, to resolve this conflict that often people have that either you need to be doing something just for yourself or some, something for the world. And in fact, you can do both. And that's what non-duality yeah. delivers is that in fact, the distinction between you and the world is actually 
it's it's a temporary a, a dualistic distinction and it has value but it often can create a kind of almost like undercurrent of like well well it's more important to take care of the world than is take care of me or it's more important to take care of me than to take care of the world and i would pr- premise that actually it's both are equally important so basically basically that um, basic hermetic question between theurgy and thaumaturgy where you either draw yeah. the deity down or you bring yourself up to deity is not necessary because non-dualism resolves it for you is that it, what you're saying it does it resolves it for you and i would yeah. say that in fact you do both sometimes you yeah. go up And you are, in a sense, you, you, the ascending tradition is the attempt by the seeker and the mystic to break through to pure consciousness. And then once, and whatever meditative techniques you are using to go up the, you know, up the refined states of meditation, those things simply make it easier for you to potentially perceive the non-dual truth and, and then actually download it into your body and your, and your mind. And then bringing the deity down is a way of then saying, oh, now that it's in my mind, how can I hold it? You know, because yeah. my, my little human monkey mind's not so great at that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 sure, 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 sure. Uh, well, well, you basically those eleven parts of your book. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't call it a grimoire exactly, but it's like a course, right? A yeah, course to, be, to become the mystic wizard, right? Yes, it's, I would say yeah, it, yeah. And it has um, journeys in it, so you can go on the journeys here, and they're actually um, you can read them, which I suggest you do, just to get a feel for them. And then they're for free on my website, so you can just you can just listen yeah. to. Them. Now, it's as if yeah. it's course for me. Yeah, that, that I wanted to say because that's very important. It's like passworking, right? In, yes, in a way. very much like passworking. Yeah, uh, and and but of course, what is always not always, but for many people, difficult, especially in our times and day when nobody seems to have time, um, is to to really interiorize the the, the, right. the past that you want to go and, yes. and to imagine it in the way because you don't remember that detail and that detail and you have to read it again, etc. And with the listening possibility that you have much created on your website, yeah. it's much more powerful, it's much yeah. easier also for the for the yeah. practitioner yeah, yeah. to get into it, right? Yeah, and I think it's, um, it's important people know that I didn't write the journeys as a fiction exercise and then actually, you know, and then record them all of the, yeah. every journey I've ever done is something that I've taken at least five to six people on and we've drawn oracular cards. We've done some Oracle work and then we've gone on a quest based on those cards into this highly developed inner world. And then mm-hmm. the stuff unfolds and it's quite magical because people see things before I say it. Um, um, various kinds of, you know, beings show up that repeatedly show up. Then I came back, recorded them, and then they were, they were transcribed. So these journeys are not an act of fiction. They're an act of exploration. And that, and that's why right. they feel initiatory when people go into them. My experience with people tell me when they go on these journeys that have been established is that it's easier for them to see, it's easier for them to remember, and they feel like they're going somewhere real. And that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. So I will make sure to just for our listeners here that um, those that that page, of course, your website will be also linked on the on the show notes. But yeah. in particular, also uh, the page on your website, which gives access to those recorded journeys that it is in the separate link so that people can get directly there to yeah. if they wish to so that they can, can find it yeah. easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, um, so tell us a bit more about those 11 stages. How would you 
briefly give an overview uh, across them for for those who are interested so they see what they can expect and why they should absolutely get into that right so if you're if you're interested in the path and you're interested in how you know what it means to to set up a spiritual practice i mean really the the introduction and the forward are about you know and then part one understanding the path ahead is basically taking a look at why would you want to start a spiritual practice and why do you want to develop it? What does it do for you? And it compares it to being an athlete or a musician. And like any of those paths, the rewards of those paths are really based on the dedication and the mastery you apply or get to it over time. And, you know, it's funny you say to people, you know, if, if people are doing spiritual practice and everything, you're like, how's it going? They go, Oh, it's really hard for me to sit or it's really hard for me to do my practice every day. But you know, if you go and ask a professional athlete, so how's your, you know, how's your training going? And it's like, Oh, it's great. It's every day. <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny how the, you know, the expectation when you're a professional athlete or a chess player or musician, it's like, and they're very clear on what it really takes to get to like high levels of accomplishment. Yeah, but I wouldn't even go that far. But even if you ask somebody who learns an instrument, who absolutely. wants to learn it, not because it's forced by you parents, they do it easily. Right. But when you say spiritual practice, say people are like, oh, the so time and do, I cannot yeah, sit yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I think it's because yeah. there's a resistance and that resistance mm. is because it's not couched in the right framework to understand why you're doing it. Like it's very obvious in the larger culture why you're doing all those other things I mentioned, right? But the, the reasoning behind why you would build a serious spiritual practice, I try to lay out in the beginning. Like I literally say, mm. well, you get for it. What does it help you for personally and how does it help the world? And I think that's the first thing is that you get the reasoning behind why would I do this? And then it very clearly kind of states in order to pull it off, what do you need to do with your priorities? I, I want to hook into that. Um, why? What does it do to the world? Because that's a question that is rarely asked. What does it do to the world? Well, so here's what's powerful about when you devote, and this comes, I, I honestly, it comes out of the, the instinct of the Buddha. I mean, he basically said the most important thing you could do is put your own spiritual development first and then act from there in the world. And the reason is because typically the problems we have in the world are coming from the egoic conflicts that we have. Um, between people and personality types, many of which honestly just think that, you know, they're, they're, they both think they're right and they have different views. And, and, and the anger and violence that comes out of that is because people don't have a larger view or perspective or uh, an access to compassion. So basically it helps the world because it makes you a better person. And that yeah. means when you're interacting with people at work and with your family or whatever, I mean, are you still going to make errors? Of course you are, that you're going to learn from making those errors. We all do. I mean, I'm, I'm continually making errors and that's what I learned. But the difference is not only will you be able to forgive yourself better, you will build it into your practice to be like, what did I learn from that? How can I journal about it? How can I become a better person? Well, I mean, if every single person on this planet had the resources and time to be able to have a basic, you know, spiritual practice, probably things would improve relatively quickly because people mm. go, they come from a different place, you know, especially a non-dual one, you know, where you, you're looking at your enemies and you really are going, okay, I really disagree with these people, but I actually understand that they're me. So then, then you can actually implement the golden rule where you're like, you actually understand why you're doing it. It's just not some moral code. You're like, Oh, actually it's like me being really angry at my hand. Well, yeah, uh, you know, it is like you being angry at your hand. Yeah. It doesn't start, yeah, I, I, but it's, it's a start. <laughs> 
and also not, just not to get misunderstood of course because I uh, even one of your parts your chapter six is called like that it's about understanding yourself it's the know thyself which is basically yes. part of all spiritual oh, traditions in the beginning yeah. Yeah. Um, is there as well it doesn't ignore that no but it, maybe it goes it, it shows you from the beginning that there is something beyond you have to without ignoring the know thyself you have to go beyond at some point otherwise it's just uh, looking in your own mirror and doesn't bring you anywhere right right it doesn't bring you anywhere and more importantly you'll ultimately miss out on a certain kind of fulfillment because from from the cosmology that i introduce which is quite simple it's the self the soul and then there's spirit or awareness and of course there's the shadow that, that the soul the guiding impulses of our whole life you know they have a it has a path for us that leads to some some more, some more high, highly possible ways of finding fulfillment. And those ways always involve the world. You know, um, even if what you're doing is on your own, you know, even if it's your, on your own, in your studio painting, it's not just for you because you are everything. Yeah. And so your paintings are for you, but they're also for the people who are going to see them. And those, you know, I mean, you think about great art and great music and great dance and what it does. I mean, I just ran a school for 24 years that's dedicated to doing this. And, um, and, and so. Well, many artists would say the arts work, the art, the, the artwork only lives because of it is being seen. Right. It's right. not, it's yeah. not, doesn't live when you just do it for yourself. Right. right. And there's, there's something too with artists as well. And, and also spiritual practitioners where, you know, the terminology I used in my school, because I, you know, we had to keep religion separate from, from, you know, what's going on. And she said, look, you're learning to connect to the source of your inspiration. And I don't care what you call it. It doesn't really matter. But how do you build a bridge, like a rainbow bridge inside yourself and stay with the practice long enough that you can break through the resistance to that source and you can bring in inspiration or what in Druidry we call Awen, you know? And, yeah. and so, so that's a lot of the practice. This is why I say that like your practice might have multiple pieces to it. I mean, typically you think of spiritual practice and you're thinking about people praying or meditating and it's like, yeah, well, it, it might involve some meditation, but it also might involve some yoga. It might involve some um, painting and drawing and poetry. I mean, a huge part of my personal practice is journaling and poetry. And so I make sense of my life really, you know, and otherwise I don't, I don't think I, I could know myself. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and then my, and then if I don't know myself, then my not knowing myself gets in the way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sure. And non-dualism is not possible then in that case, right? Exactly. Because there's too much of you getting in the way and it causes problems. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so carry on with the, with the, the past that you describe here. Okay. So, um, so part two is a, a working personal cosmology. We take a look at cosmology and how the sort of modern person's typical cosmology is based on, you know, the scientific method and positivistic thinking that, you know, really we're just a bunch of electrons and chemicals. And it kind of says like, well, you know, th that's one way of looking at it. What if we created one that was a little bit more empowering, a little more spiritually based, the idea that you're the incarnation of a celestial being called a soul. So it tries to kind of open people to the idea that the, that the mythology you believe in, the cosmology you create is actually affects what you see in the world and how you perceive and therefore how you act and that we inherit that stuff unconsciously from our culture and we didn't get to choose it. So it, it tries to empower people to be like, look, the way of the mystic wizard, if you're going to be a wizard, you got to basically go back and choose the cosmology that's going to empower you. And I'm not telling you which one to use. I'll give you the example. 
and I say like, Hey, this is the one I use. And I find, you know, it's pretty simple, quite honestly. And it's not obsessed with all the details and parts of the soul or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I, it's more about, you can think of it as like a, a cosmology allows you to build a new personal mythology that you can live from and that is empowering and allows you to have access to the spiritual world. So that's an important part. That's part two. And then part three introduces um, the nature of reality, which is the nature of consciousness or pure awareness and what that is, why that, what kind of mysticism that is, you know? Um, and then part four, we jump into a whole section. Okay. How do you build a practice? What is a practice? How do you build it? And what are the elements of it? Like building an altar? How do you commit to, you know, having a daily practice? What do you have to do to commit to it? How do you have to change your priorities? How does it affect your life almost immediately when you shift your priorities and, and decide spiritual practice is going to be important and, or the most important thing in your life? And how does it affect the rest of your life? What are the archetypal shifts? You know, those are really important things. People need to know that before they jump into something. It's kind of like, you know, don't go sign up for like, you know, a major sports team for, you know, an entire season, you know, and mm -hmm. <laughs> without knowing what it's mm -hmm. going to take and all the travel you're going to do. Right. So then, um, then part five is deepening that practice. Okay. Once you've set it up, how does it deepen? What does that affect? And then part six, we get into tools for understanding. It's like, now, now I stop you here because yeah. now here with this part six, it becomes, forgive me to say it like that becomes uh, more classical in a way but i wanted to hear you on those first five parts in particular because um they make that book for me very i mean that positively very 21st century yes because yeah. uh, they take the reader from a departing point where most or many young people who are at least a little bit interested in spirituality, I yeah, mean, you need right. that before you buy right. a book, right? right. Um, but uh, um, where they stand and, and, and uh, yeah. they've inherited. start from. So it's not like those old traditional classical um, books on on that path to choose where you start immediately with you have already your altar and you're already yes, in it no. and now you do that and this yeah. uh, it takes the reader from the very beginning yeah would, yeah. You, would you agree with my absolutely with my completely view? agree and i and i think that that's it, it because it comes from the course i obviously had students who coming in every single year who had never taken the course and yes. sometimes i'd have a, a teaching assistant who'd taken it the year before so i i inherently felt like i want to write this for the student who comes to me and says, Hey, and, and really like I've had, so I've had these conversations so many times with people and, and, and which says, Hey, I'm really interested. I saw your, your lecture on this, or I saw your YouTube thing on this. Where do I start? And it's like here, here are these first five chapters and, and they're not real complicated, but there is an initiatory sense of it. There's a shift in worldview that happens if you engage with it. So even if you've, yeah, Even if you've been doing this work for a long time and you think, oh, I know about altars and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, sure. But it's not just telling you to build an altar. It's kind of beginning to help you understand what's behind the shift that goes along with it archetypally. So things that you might have already done, but didn't even realize you were changing in your life. And so, hmm. and I try to do this with my students. I mean, that's why like it's part one says understanding the path ahead. And, you know, most books don't talk about, you know, you know, magic books and stuff. Don't have a whole section on your personal cosmology when you begin. Exactly. That you need, that you're going to, you're going to shift it if you actually fall. Maybe much it. later, but to the too late stage. But too late. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah, yeah. realize that you've been altered, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, then, then the problem with that, from my perspective is then resistance pops up. 
you know, then it's like mm-hmm. if, that, if that idea of that thing you've been shifted by, you know, page 200 and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I don't really want to live this way, whatever. And then you throw the book away. And, 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 mm-hmm. and as opposed to saying up front, look, this is how I'm, I'm introducing this. This is what I'm initiating you to see if it sits right. See if it feels right for you or if you yeah. change it a little bit, you know, and then take what you want. Take the pieces you mm-hmm. want and build it. Be your own mystic wizard. You know, the, yeah. the only thing that you kind of can't, you know, quote unquote, abandon if you're going to actually do this path is is the archetype of the mystic wizard is the combining of the non-duality with the shamanic approach, because it, it's yeah. the power of those two things coming together that gives people the ability to to chart their own course and to listen to their own soul and to mix these things together in such a way that they can find their way forward. I mean, otherwise, right. if, if you don't want to do that, then then you, then you probably have another path that's working for you already, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah. Which is fine, too. But, yeah, but I mean, that's, yeah. that's the basic uh, presumption you have to accept. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe you already partly answered that question now. But um, uh, if I asked you, who's that book aimed for? Um, what would you what would you say to that? Well, I would say it's. Interestingly enough, I found that there's a lot of people who are, who are much older who are also really interested in the book. Um, it's mm-hmm. any it's anybody I would say who in the, who's in there is a young adult, you know, anywhere from 18 to 30. Um, I just did a, a conference called Wider Horizons where it was all about young adults and spirituality, and it was quite beautiful. You know, there was no alcohol, there's no drugs, there was none of this, and it was like all oriented. Interesting enough, and non duality was there, and there's shamanic stuff and everything. And th- those guys, those young adults, were deeply interested in this approach because it kind of brings together a bunch of things that they're they're interested in at the same time that nobody's mm-hmm. brought together before so i would say yeah it's kind of written for the 18 to 30 year old crowd um however it's also written for someone you know i mean i have you know students who are 75 years old who have been waiting to find a way to, interestingly enough they've been waiting to find to bring these two things together They might be like a Buddhist who also was really drawn to Celtic mythology and shamanism, but they've just like the two things have never touched each other. Like they go to they go to their Celtic magic group and they don't, the two groups don't know about each other. And they're, and they, they're finding kind of like almost a reconciliation in the book of like, Oh, my practice, I can be both. I can merge them and be like, yeah, yeah, it's all okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's an interesting point. Actually. I'd not had not thought of that, but of course those people do exist. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's uh, the people uh, who are drawn to it. I think, you know? Yeah. And also people who uh, I would think, who uh, and there are more and more of that who are in the place uh, on earth where you do not necessarily have access uh, to to a group you would like to join or something yes. there are yeah. big parts of uh, also the western world where you don't have that and yes and yes. Uh, i think it's a kind of practice where you can function in a way yeah on without your having to yep. absolutely have a group around you and the yeah, yeah. well and, and what one of the things i was concerned about like i said the institute for non-dual shamanism which i started five years ago is all based on zoom and um and i i learned actually that from from peter because I, I took a class from him on Zoom and he lives in Australia and, and there were 20 of us all over the world, you know, studying non-duality and how to teach it with him. And so I've been running these, this Zoom class, um, you know, for this group of about, you know, seven to 10, what I would call seekers, questers of 
in the Institute and they helped me with the book. And what's, what's evolved is a kind of community out of that. That's really focused around practice rather than spending a lot of time in fellowship. We really are doing the practices we're sharing, we're transmitting and sharing the non-duality. We're going on the journeys. We're reflecting on the journeys. And then we're like, we'll see you next week. So as the book has come out, more people are showing up who are interested in that kind of work. Are you uh, actually doing what you would call ritual work online as well, or is it more debating it? Oh, I mean, we're definitely going into the inner world. There's definitely a ceremony, but the ceremony you is, are. Mm. yeah, it's very much like what I described earlier, where it's just like, I'm, I, I'm actually in my room setting up a sacred altar when I do it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm mm. definitely calling in the four, the spirits, the four directions, the ancestors, the whole thing. Now, everybody isn't necessarily seeing that every time I'm doing all the preliminary work to get everything set. But up. are they all doing it on their own as well? No, no, no. Each one of them has their own practices and they can, they right. can pull in and that, that would be a separate thing they do on their own. They're showing up and we're like, hello, it's, you know, everybody's great. We're just good to see it. I might call in a few more things that we're doing. I've drawn the cards that we're using ahead of time. And then I start speaking about the cards and what's, what's drawn out. And then I'm like, ah, okay, where are we on the quest for the five, you know, the sacred hallows? And let's mm -hmm. see, we're seeking the spear and some spear stuff has come up and, and it's usually there's a theme that evolves that the inner world is, ha is drawn from the oracular pieces, right? From the oracles. And then we go into the inner world and the inner world shows us what it wants to show us. And we go on a quest. Right. Then we come back out and we talk about it. Yeah, because I find it interesting, um, of course, the last two and a half years in particular, but yes. <laughs> even more than that, but they have kind of pushed that, um, how the world of magic, occultism, all that kind of has developed in the online world, let's yeah. put it that way, in the, yeah. in the, um, and I must say I'm surprised and positively surprised that many good things have come out of it. I was a bit afraid that it might become superficial and et cetera. Right. Yep. Uh, of course that has happened as well. Sure. And, and the internet is not a replacement for real work, so to speak. But, um, I think it opened new ways of collaborating, yep. of doing, um, spiritual work together. And we should not laugh at that. We should, we should explore yeah. that in, in a positive way. Would you, would you see it like that? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of ways to do it shallowly, but what I found is quite the opposite has happened, which is that because yeah. people in their own home altars, they're incredibly comfortable, secure. They don't have to waste money getting to another place, which is huge. Yep. And you know, this, this main group that I have, I mean, I have a person in Portland, I have a person in Seattle, I have a person in New York city. I have two people in England and I have another person, um, let's see in Denver. So, and I'm in mm -hmm. London. So you, you think about that and it's like, we're, we found each other from all over the planet. How would I have ever found these people otherwise? You know, yeah. in other words, there's not necessarily a ton of people who are really interested in doing this work. I mean, there may be more after the, you know, the podcast, but <laughs> um, I hope, so. I hope yeah. so. Right. But the idea is here, like, look, we, we live in a miraculous time where we can talk to people. I mean, this is our magic right here, folks, you know, that we can talk to each other the way we are. So exactly. I'm really thankful for it. And it's created a real community. And I don't mean community like we're hanging out, chit-chatting all the time. I mean, an esoteric working group community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. We're going through real stuff. And well, there's the difference. There's the yeah. difference. I mean, I did some uh, work uh, 
with a, with a group. But, but the important thing is that I didn't bring the, as you said, that the screen was blank, right? Yeah. We yeah. didn't show up because otherwise, hello, hello, everybody, everybody starts chatting to everyone. Yeah. And so the, 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 the work would never start actually. Yeah. But yeah. if you cut down the microphones and just the leader of the group will start to speak and then you open the mics for those who want to say yeah, something. Yeah, and so on. Yeah. It, it, you have to give it some form, but then you've really got to give it structure. And, yeah. And, and I'm yeah, really pretty structured. Exactly. Like I said, I've been teaching for 30 years. So yeah, sure. it, for me, it's just like, it's pretty easy. I just run the show and I know how to do it and exactly. go in the right direction. So, you know? so maybe uh, if I may say that, um, uh, please um, contradict me if you don't agree. But um, if somebody wants to set up things like that, use a software that allows you to cut microphones that yeah. is more a kind of a presentational software than a chat software. That's, I think that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I've, I've been using zoom the whole time and, and I'm now granted, I'm, I only have six to eight people on the, on the, on the group at any given time. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. So a smaller group. It's okay. very small. So, I mean, if I helpful. had 20, yeah. 25, 30 people, hmm. yeah, you, you can still use zoom, but it's a little bit more complicated, you know? Yeah. 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 So, uh, given that this book is the book of the 21st century, we have wandered into new realms here at the end of the talk, but I think it was, it was good to do that. Yeah. Um, um, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. That was a great talk we had and I, I hope he, our people, I'm, I'm sure they enjoyed it just as much as we did. And, um, well, maybe you have some final words for our audience that you would like to give them on their way. Yeah, I would just say if you feel like this, um, the way of the mystic wizard calls to you, then, you know, the, the book is available, obviously. And then, like I said, there's a bunch of free things on the website and, and I'll continue to put other journeys on the website eventually. And then, um, I will have some offerings, you know, um, but I guess the main thing would be is, is really learning to listen for whether the path works for you or parts of it work for you. And that's really the key to being your own mystic wizard is, is learning to listen to the source of your own inspiration rather than saying like, oh, this is the only answer. So that, that spiritual autonomy, that listening is, is actually what carries you through in much later stages of the path. Um, and so I would call the listening is probably one of the most important aspects. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Um, Good luck with that project and with the continuation of it. And of course, all those necessary links will be on the website on the show notes of this episode. And I wish you all the best. Thanks for being with us here today. Thanks, Rudolf. And good luck. All right. Take care. Bye.
Awake and Dissolve. Well, we'll try, won't we? Okay, this was track number three that we heard today from Across the Never That City by Crystal Linder. And uh, I have a great thank you to my guest, Matthew Thomas Baker, who was with me here on the show talking about the non-dual shamanic path and practice, the way of the mystic wizard, as he named it and his book about that and but also about his background all the ideas around that really interesting thank you and thank you all to be here with me in this show to listen to thought podcast every week and come back and it's great to have you it's great and fun to make that show for you and i hope it'll be the same for you every week well talking about next week next week will be episode 23 of season eight and my guest next week will be a brit uh, ian reese um ian reese who together with another uh, another writer a woman writer i'm not gonna give you all the detail here here today has released a book on well in fact about the novels the the, the fiction novels by Diane Fortune and what they mean in relation to Diane Fortune's um, book, The Mystical Kabbalah. But we also speak about Ian Rees himself and about his background. He is quite a background in the Western tradition uh, in Great Britain and elsewhere. So it's going to be a fun interview and interesting, I'm sure. Yes, and that will be our program for next week. Episode 24, the last one, is lurking the week after. So just to give you an idea, episode 24 will be on August the 14th, and that will be the end of season 8. It will be a kind of season finale. I'm not going to give away the name of my guest there yet. Um, and after that, we take a break. No show, no new show on the 21st of August. It will give you the occasion to listen to all the old shows you haven't listened to yet and we'll be back with season nine if all goes well on the 28th of august and or maybe one week later i'm not 100 percent sure about that yet depending a bit on my on my time and maybe i want to take two weeks off which was also sometimes nice in summer but we'll see i'll let you know in time of course so have a nice week. We'll hear you again next week on the 7th of August with Ian Rees and his thoughts on Don't Die on Fortune. And for now, you take care of yourself because it's important to stay safe and healthy. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.